podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Good boys and girls, two for the podcast on Friday, the 9th of December. World Cup quarterfinals start today. We have, I think, two pretty good games laid out in front of us. So, first up in today's fixtures, we get Croatia versus Brazil. Obviously, Brazil will be heavy favorites, but there is a world in which Croatia just frustrate them. And Luka Modric conjures something and Croatia go through. So I wouldn't be writing them off, but I do think Brazil will be favourites and probably will advance. But the other game, the later game, Netherlands versus Argentina, I think this is maybe the tie of the round. 
it's the most closely matched in my view. I think these are the two teams that are you know, right up against each other in terms of quality. And I think it's going to be a fascinating chess match because Louis van Gaal has a plan. What that plan is remains to be seen. But from a tactical point of view, he's comfortably the best manager left in this competition. And I wouldn't put it past him to have some idea of how to stop Lionel Messi. I think that's going to be a fascinating game. My head says the Netherlands win. My heart wants Argentina to win because I want Messi to win the World Cup. I still think it's very unlikely because even beating the Netherlands, you're still going to have to probably go through Brazil and then probably through France in the final. And that's a massive, massive ask. But what a way it would be for him to finally win this competition. Those are today. Those will be fun. Tomorrow we have Morocco versus Portugal in the early game and then England versus France in the late game. Again, I think they're both interesting games. I think Morocco, on paper, the weakest team left in the competition, but their self-belief, their discipline, their tactical setup, their defensive structure, I think they're all very, very strong things that go in their favour. Whereas with Portugal... They've looked much better with Cristiano off the field. And if that continues, they could well open that Moroccan defence up. Big question marks over a couple of the Moroccan players' fitness. So we'll see how that turns out. And then England versus France is the last one. England's mindset seems to be if if we stop Mbappe, we'll stop France. And I think that might be their downfall because if they focus too much on Mbappe, they might end up leaving Luke Shaw 1v1 with Usman Dembele. And I don't fancy Luke Shaw's chances in that. Antoine Griezmann's playing well. Olivier Giroud's in form. Rabiot's in form. Chouameni's in form. That defence looks strong. The one weak point in that French team is the goalkeeper. But, as we all know, he is capable of outstanding performances. Whereas I look at the England team, Kane is playing really, really well in this competition. He hasn't been as clinical in front of goal as you'd expect, but he has been excellent. Bellingham's been A little bit hit and miss. He was great against Iran. He was great against Senegal. In the other two games, I didn't think he was particularly good. I don't think Declan Rice has had a good competition thus far. Henderson had a good game against Senegal after he scored. But he was poor against the Welsh. And he has been poor for the majority of the last three years nearly. Since he had that injury in February of 2020. He has been largely poor. So... He needs to step up. He needs a big performance. The defence is where I have concerns, though. We're talking about Harry Maguire, Luke Shaw, John Stones, Kyle Walker, all error-prone defenders, and Jordan Pickford, an error-prone goalkeeper. So there's always a chance one of them does something stupid, or two of them do two stupid things and cost England a couple of goals. And if that's the case, then England are going to have major issues. I'll be curious to see what he does with the wing areas. I'll be curious to see if he goes with the with the 4-3-3 slash 4-2-3-1 or if he reverts to type and does the cowardly thing and goes with a back five and two sitting midfielders. My expectation is he goes back five, two sitting midfielders and then Bellingham behind Kane and somebody.
but neither Saka nor Foden should be dropped. They're both in excellent form. If he does go back five, it is really Henderson who should drop out with Bellingham and Rice as the pair in midfield. Does that give you enough defensive solidity? Do you need it when you're playing a back five? I think you'd probably be okay. And then you can play Saka, Kane and Foden. That game is fascinating. They're all really interesting games. One question that I missed yesterday, this one is from Mikhail Campbell. Which generation or generations of Dutch football players was their golden generation? Now, my belief is it was 1971 to 1978. The national team reached two World Cup finals, lost to West Germany and then to Argentina, but lost that game to Argentina without Cruyff. And if Cruyff goes to the 78 World Cup, I do think they win it. In that time as well, you also had that great Ajax team that won three European Cups in a row, which, as we know, is an incredible achievement. To win three in a row is so, so difficult. And back then, I think it might have even been more difficult because you're playing a champion every single year. You're playing, or every single round, you're playing champions. So, yeah, pretty special. Um, pretty special IX team. Actually, I, I tell a lie, it wasn't 71, it was 70, because Feyenoord won the European Cup in 1970. So you had Feyenoord in 70, IX in 71, 72, and 73. Four years in a row, that competition was won by a Dutch team. I do think there's a golden generation in the late 80s as well. Obviously, PSV win the European Cup in 88. And you have Van Basten and Hullet and Rijkaard and Koeman. And that's a really strong team. But I'm not sure it's as strong as the team from the 70s. But the big thing that stands in their favour is that they won the 1988 European Championships, which is the greatest moment in the history of the Dutch national team, winning a major tournament. And obviously we know that that team had a lot of special players. You had Hans-Van Breuklin in goal. He was excellent. Rijkaard and Koeman at centre-back, one of the best pairings ever. Jan Wouters, Erwin Koeman in midfield. Hullet and Van Basten up front. You Johnny, Johnny Van Skip coming off the bench. John Bosman off the bench. Wim Kieft off the bench. That's a really strong team. And that Dutch team won a major tournament. And to be fair, that's the greatest achievement they've had. So I think they deserve mention as well. And then obviously there's the team of the 90s that imploded in 1996 at the Euros. A team that was largely made up of the Ajax team that had won the European Cup final in 95. When you think about that Ajax team, you Van der Sar, Reitziger, Danny Blind, Frank Reichard, Frank De Boer. That's an unbelievably good back four. Two lockdown defenders at fullback, two centre-backs that are at that point in the tail end of their career, but still so far ahead of everybody they played against in terms of their, their intelligence. In midfield, Clarence Seedorf, legend. Edgar Davids, legend. Yari Lipmanen, incredible. 
and then Finiti George, Ronald De Boer, and Mark Overmars up front. That three diamond three that was patented by Louis van Gaal, where Rijkaard played as a centre-back, but almost as a holding midfielder as well, and Blind played as a centre-back, but almost as a sweeper. The flanking defenders would tuck in when they had possession, and it would be a back three and Rijkaard would sit in front. When they would lose possession, it would become a flat four. <clears throat> so with Rijkaard stepping forward, he was always an outlet to receive the ball. And if they got caught in transition, he was more than happy to step out and meet somebody running with the ball. He was Frank Rijkaard is one of the greatest holding midfielders ever. He also just happened to be a world-class centre-back. And Louis van Gaal was able to get the best of both by basically playing him in both positions in the same system. Seydorf and Davids, they're two of the, the great midfielders of the last 30 years. Yari Litmanen, I mean, the talent in that lad. It's just a shame that injuries kind of curtailed the later part of his career because he was a player who had such an incredible understanding of the game that you felt like, watching him early in his career, you felt like, this guy will play till he's late 30s and it'll be easy for him. He'll play in the hole off a striker, just put pace around him and it's going to work. And unfortunately, injuries just took him off the pitch too often. Mark Overmars is one of my favourite wingers of all time. Um, always had a always had a soft spot for Finiti George. Always liked him. Still find it absolutely insane that he played for Ipswich. Um, the trouble with this team for Ajax is that Reitziger left on a free. Blind and Reichardt ended up retiring. De Boer ran down his contract, went for far less than he was worth. Seedorf left early. He left after this. Uh, David's left on a free. De Boer, Ronald De Boer, he left cheap. Overmars brought in decent money. Yari Litmanen left on a free. Winston Bogart coming off the bench left on a free. Patrick Clivert coming off the bench who scored the winner left on a free. And Nwanku Kanu, there was an issue with his health, if you remember, and it dropped the fee that he was actually due to command. So for all this incredible talent that they put together, they didn't reap the financial rewards. And I think this is part of what caused, I don't want to say the downfall of Ajax, but it was. Like, they win this European Cup. The following year, they get to the final and lose to Juve on penalties. And again, van der Sar is in goal. Sonny Saloy plays right back because Reitziger's injured. Uh, Blind is there. De Boer has moved to centre-back at this point. Uh, Bogart has come in at left-back. Ronald De Boer has dropped back into midfield to replace Seedorf. Davids and George and Lippmann are there. Overmars has left. He'd gone to Arsenal. Did he go straight to Arsenal? He didn't go straight to Arsenal. Did he? Mark Overmars. Did he go straight to Arsenal? I think he did. Yeah, he went straight to Arsenal. No, he must have just been injured for that final. He didn't go until 97. Kiki Musamba had come in. He wasn't of the same level. Neither was Bogart. Neither was Saloy. 
And starting to lose all these players on freeze really started to hurt them. Ravinelli obviously scored for Juve. Litmanen would score the equaliser and then it went to penalties and they lost They lost 4-2. And then that was kind of it for Ajax as a, as a European force. Until that Europa League run in, what, 2016-17? And I, I do think a big part of it was all of those players leaving for freeze when they would have been hoping to really rinse in huge, huge profits on players that they put a lot of time and effort into developing, players that they were banking on to bring them massive sums of money. And unfortunately, they just managed the contracts so, so poorly. Like, let's have a look and see. Um... Rijkaard went to AC Milan on a Bosman, spent a year there, was injured the whole time, ended up at Barca, did well at Barca, played for Middlesbrough and then retired with PSV Eindhoven. Frank de Boer, he went to Barcelona. The two brothers actually brought in decent money, to be fair, 22 million, which was, was good money back then, a bit of 11 million each. I think Frank was a bit more in the deal. I think it might have been 12 for Frank and 10 for Ronald. But um, Frank obviously went on to play for Barca for a long time. Galatasaray, some time at Rangers, and then finished off playing in the Middle East. Uh, Clarence Seydorf, he left for Sampdoria. He actually left on a Bosman. He left in a Bosman, signed a one-year deal with Sampdoria and then went on to Real Madrid where he became a star. Then to Inter Milan, then AC Milan, which is what most people remember of him, finished off playing in Brazil. Just like I say, one of the great midfielders. Davids ended up at Milan on a Bosman and then went to Juventus a couple of years later because kind of where he spent the largest chunk of his career, played for Barca, Inter, Spurs, Ajax, Crystal Palace and hilariously Barnett to end his career. Absolutely outstanding player. Ronald De Boer went to Barca. It didn't work from there. He went to Rangers and spent four years there. And it was very, very good for Rangers, to be fair, and then finished off in the Middle East with his brother. Mark Overmars, Arsenal, then Barcelona, and then finished with go-ahead Eagles. Yari Litmanen went to Barcelona Ended up went to Liverpool, went back to Ajax, and then just sort of bounced around for years and years and years, playing all over the place. But no, he was just never the same. Once he left Ajax, it was never the same. Uh, Clivert went to AC Milan on a Bosman; it didn't work out. He went to Barcelona, had six years there. Ended up at Newcastle for a year, Valencia, PSV, and Lille. Winston Bogart went to Milan on a Bosman; didn't work. Went to Barcelona on a short-term contract. Didn't work. And then ended up at Chelsea in what really has to be one of the worst free agent signings ever. Um, I think he played there for four years. Played 11 times in four years and earned 40 grand a week, which back then was was massive money. Um, 
for, for sitting on the bench. Nine league games in total. Van der Sar went to Juve, Fulham, and then obviously Manchester United. That was a great team. So, yeah, I would say those are the three. I, I would always lean towards the first one, 70 to 78. And then after that, I would go the 80s team because Rijkaard, Hullet, Van Basten, that alone gets you in the in the door. And then obviously winning that Euros. The team in the 90s underachieved in total because there was all that talent, plus the talent that came through at, Fion- at Feyenoord, at Twente, at PSV, everywhere else. And yet for the national team, they did fairly well at the 98 World Cup. You know, they had Burkamp as well in this era. But that 96 meltdown remains one of the one of the more memorable things I can remember at a major championships when Edgar Davids was sent home and the team just seemed to implode on itself. And you look at the names, Van der Sar, Reitziger, Blin, Seedorf, Yap Stam. He'd come into the squad as a re- injury replacement for Frank De Boer, Ronald De Boer, Davids, Clivert, Burkamp, Hoekstra, Aaron Vinter, Arthur Newman, very, very solid left back, Richard Vishka, really good left winger, Bogart, Ed De Hoy, later of Manchester United fame, never really understood how Jordi Cruyff got in the squad. Philip Koku, really good player. And yet, they were just an unmitigated disaster at this competition. Like, in their group, they were in with England, and England smashed them 4-1. They'd beaten Switzerland, they'd drawn with Scotland. They were straightforward games. And then they get into the knockout phase. They play a really mediocre French team. And it's just, it's awful. It's like they don't want to be there. Now, that French team obviously would develop incredibly well over the next two years and win the World Cup and then the Euros. But this was sort of still the early days of Zidane and Jorkaev in the team. They were still finding their way. There's a lot of average players in that French team. So, yeah, that would be number three, and it might not even count as a golden generation. Anyway, moving on. Um, Luis Enrique is out as Spain manager. He has resigned or being been fired. It, who knows? I think he's overrated. I think he's a massively overrated coach. I wouldn't be a big fan of Luis Enrique. I'm not a fan of his brand. Uh, oh, I've actually just realised I missed part of Mikhail's question. Uh, who do you think should replace Van Hal after the World Cup? Do you know, I don't actually know. That's the truth of it. I don't actually know. Like The problem with the Netherlands managerial history is that they, they've bounced through a lot of managers. Like, if you consider that Van Hal was manager in 2014 and is back now since 2021, there was a seven-year gap there in which Gus Hiddink was manager, Danny Blind was manager, 
Fred Grimm was caretaker manager for three games. Dick Advocate was manager. Ronald Koeman was manager. Dwight Lodowich, he was manager as a caretaker. And then Frank DeBoer was manager. Like, that's a lot of turnover. And it's not like there are a whole bunch of great Dutch managers out there right now. I always thought Rennie Muhlenstein might get the job. Now, he turned out not to be a good manager. Um, much, much better as an assistant manager. And one of the best assistants you'll find. I wonder if it's the same with Pep and Linders, if maybe he's just an assistant manager. But I'd be interested to see Pep and Linders manage the Dutch, Dutch national team. I'd be very interested to see how that would work. Can he translate his ideas? Is he better? He might, as a personality, he might be better suited to international management than club management. He's obviously a good assistant manager at club level, but I think he, the the word was that when he went out on his own, he grated on the players after a period of time. I wonder with international football being shorter bursts, maybe that would suit him. And I think he would quite enjoy overseeing a national structure and being able to shape things from schoolboy all the way up. So Pep and Linders, that's who I'll go for. Um, Yeah, Louis Enrique, he's done okay. He's done okay with the national team of Spain, but I, I just don't think he's a particularly good manager. He did a pretty good job with Barcelona's B team. He was awful with Roma. I don't think he did he did particularly well with Celta Vigo. He did very well with Barcelona, but let's be really honest about the players he had. The Messi, Suarez, Neymar front three is arguably the greatest front three ever constructed. And in midfield, he had Rakitic, who was outstanding, and Busquets and Iniesta, who are two-thirds of the greatest midfield maybe ever. Those two in Xavi. So, for as well as he did, look at the talent he had. Two La Ligas and a Champions League. Really, really well done. But I will point out that in that time, Real Madrid won two Champions Leagues and the other La Liga title in that three-year span. So Real will say, well, we were more successful because we won two European Cups and you only won one. So, you know, did he underachieve? Should he have won more in Europe? Probably. With that front three, probably. Um, Took over for Spain in, in 2018, and obviously it was cut short after the tragic death of his daughter, which is just horrible, and you never, ever want to see. And he, he does seem like a, like a nice guy. And he's, I, I, I quite like how honest he is and how open he is, but, you know, I know that annoys some people, but you, he seems like a nice guy. And regardless of whether he is or not, you never want to see someone lose their child. 
Um, so he takes time away from the national team. He comes back eight months later, and I, I don't think it's gone great. He's won twenty of thirty nine games. Twenty of thirty nine games. That's fairly average, in my view. So, I, I, I just, I, I, I don't think he's a particularly good manager, and I don't think he's a big loss. Who they replace him with, I've no idea. I genuinely don't, but I don't care enough to really put much thought into it. They'll find somebody. There's a lot of talent coming through. They'll be fine, but I, I just think he, hit his brand of football bores the life out of me. Like. If you're attempting a thousand passes in a game and having very few real opportunities to score goals, then I don't really care what your reputation is. Like, let's let's be honest about their, their performance in this competition. They played Costa Rica and smacked them. They played Spain and they were the better team for large stretches of that game, but you never really felt like they were going to win the game. Against Japan, they attempted 1,058 passes with 83% of the possession and only had five shots on target. And against Morocco, it's 1,019 attempted passes, 77% of the ball, one shot on target. It's the most pointless football ever. So no, uh, not not at all. Uh, sad to see him go. Um, Garrett Southgate, boffin that he is, says England have got credibility now. England now are now established as genuine contenders. Says Southgate. He's basing this obviously off getting to a semi final at the last World Cup and getting to the final of the. Last Euros. However, what I would suggest is Garrett Southgate has been very fortunate to have had that kind of success. If we look at the group that England came through in 2018, they beat Tunisia with a last minute Harry Kane goal. Then they beat Panama, mighty Panama. And then they lost to Belgium. So the one good team in the group beat them. Into the knockout phase. They draw with Colombia. Now I know they went through on penalties. But the fact is they drew with Colombia. A fairly average Colombian team. Then they beat a very average Swedish team. Then they lost to Croatia. And then they lost to Belgium. So they played three matches against two good teams. And lost all of them. The only other half-decent team they played was Colombia. And they drew with them. So they beat Sweden. They beat Panama. And they beat Tunisia. It's not exactly a murderer's row of teams that you've beaten. Let's move forward then. To the European Championships. So they beat Croatia 1-0. That's a good result. It's a group stage, but it's a good result. 
Then they draw with Scotland, who are average on a good day. And then they beat the Czechs, and again, they're average on a good day. Into the knockout phases, they beat Germany. But as we've since come to know, that German team were very, very average. Then they wiped the floor with Ukraine. Again, Ukraine are fairly average. And then they beat Denmark, who are fairly average. Then they draw with Italy. Now, it's a fairly average Italy team. Compared to the great Italian teams, it's a fairly average Italy team. They lose on penalties. So the one good win I would give them across those two competitions is Croatia in these Euros. But it's a group stage game. Like, what else am I meant to get excited about? What What is showing you as contenders? What about this competition? You beat an average Iran who weren't prepared for the game, distracted by what's going on at home, get outplayed by an average American team, and you beat Wales, who are awful, and you beat Senegal, who are decent, but missing their best player. I don't know what there is that we're supposed to all applaud. I don't know what there is that we're all meant to look at and say, oh, what a great job. See, this England team is built up by the English media. Built up to fail. Same thing they did with the golden generation. Never held them accountable. Never pushed for more. And my belief is that if and when they lose in this tournament, I believe it will be tomorrow to France, they'll get slated by the same media that has built them up to be something that they're not. Southgate will get criticised by the same media members who've built him up to be something that he's not. Henry Winter is the only big-time journalist I have seen criticise Southgate. He's the only one I saw question the decision to give him a new contract in the middle of the Euros. All the rest of them fall in line. Many of the pundits played with him. They're never going to criticise him. Ever. It's the same thing. We never saw Gerard being criticised by pundits. We don't see Lampard being criticised by pundits. We didn't see Oli Gunnar Solskjaer getting criticised by Neville or Keane, or Scholes, or Ferdinand, or any of the other United pundits. It just doesn't happen. They'll protect their own jobs to the boys. And Southgate is getting protected. And if England go out to France, people will just say, oh, well, it's France. But the players will get slated, because that's what happens. I don't think England are contenders. I'd love to be proven wrong. But I don't see it. For them to get to, to the final, they'll have to beat France and then Portugal or Morocco. I think the Portuguese team would tear them apart. And then in the final, they'd be likely to face Brazil or Argentina or the Netherlands. I just don't see it. I don't. I just don't see how they can win the t- the competition. I think all of those teams are better than them. Um, two pieces on the BBC website about Cristiano. 
World Cup 22, why Cristiano Ronaldo still has a Portugal role as new stars emerge, says Alex Bysout. His suggestion is that Cristiano can become a mentor for young players in the Portugal squad. Well, we've just seen him spend 18 months at United and not be a mentor to any of the players there. His manager has come out and said it's time to leave him alone. You should leave him alone as well. Leave him sitting on the bench all by himself. And then your team might have a better better chance at winning the competition. But if he plays, I expect him to go out. I think if he plays against Morocco, I think they might go out. Because it's like playing with 10 men. I don't think he can play that Moroccan team with 10 men. We'll take a break. When we come back, we've got Manchester United. And we're going to try and pick one player from this World Cup for each Premier League team. We're going to try and do that quite quickly. And we'll have the gossip. So I'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, Manchester United this season. It hasn't been pretty, but things have turned around. They currently sit in the Premier League standings in fifth position. They began the season with a defeat at home to Brighton, a 2-1 that really and truly should have been probably four or five They got beaten 4-0 away by Brentford. They beat Liverpool 2-1 at home. Then they beat Southampton 1-0. Very, very fortunate to win that game. Then they beat Leicester 1-0, and they were a bit fortunate in that one as well. Then they got a great result and beat Arsenal 3-1. By far the best performance under Eric Ten Hag. Schooled a very naive Arsenal team on the day. Four wins in a row. All four coming with a style of play that was nothing resembling what Eric Ten Hag was brought to Manchester United for. Eric Ten Hag was brought in to bring, to quote Andy Tate, a Barca style of play. The Guardiola system. That's what Ten Hag bases what his philosophy is off is that ultra-possession-based positional football. That's what he did at Ajax. And he tried it at United for two games and had to bin it off. And what we saw in those four games was prime Oli Ball. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer brought in as a consultant or something to get his style of play back in fashion. And that's what they did. They played counter-attacking football. The one notable thing about this run, they dropped Cristiano. Deep block, pace up front, work really hard, fight and claw for everything, hit teams in the counter. That's what they did. 
Then they got walloped by City because they got a little bit too excited and thought they could maybe go toe-to-toe with City. Then they played Everton. And they beat Everton 2-1 at Goodison. And Cristiano scored. And that meant he got back in the team. They drew 0-0 with Newcastle. Then they beat Tottenham 2-0. That was a good result and a good performance. They drew 1-1 at home to Chelsea. They were quite fortunate to get the draw there. They beat West Ham. Oh, it was away to Chelsea. Sorry, away to Chelsea. They beat West Ham at home. Then Aston Villa took them to the cleaners. Then they beat Fulham. And again, Cristiano had been dropped. Now, as we know, he has had multiple moments of uh, taking away the glow. So they beat Tottenham 2-0. And he walks off with a couple of minutes left and heads off down the tunnel. And what should have been a lot of excitement about a good win, a good performance, what should have been media coverage about that became media coverage about him. Then they play Fulham. And that night, the clips come out of his interview with Piers Morgan. He's absent from the squad for that game. And then this unsanctioned interview comes out. And that's it. Game over. The best thing Manchester United have done for the health of Manchester United, the football club, in a a long time, is they've binned him off now. He's gone. They no longer have to deal with his garbage. They were a decent team in the 2021 season and finished sixth. They weren't good. They weren't great. They were decent. And they finished second. And then they signed him. And then they were garbage. And without him this season, they've been decent. With him, they've been largely garbage. In the EFL Cup, they beat Aston Villa 4-2. They're going relatively strongly in the Europa League. They did top, I'd say they finished second in their group. They lost to Sociedad, but then they did win five in a row. Uh, They beat Sheriff Tiraspol twice. They beat Ammonia twice. I mean, these aren't things to get overly excited about. And they, they huffed and puffed in a couple of those games. The two Ammonia games, they were very poor in. Um, and then they, they did beat Real Sociedad in the in the last game. But they go through in second place, and they'll face Barcelona, which is kind of funny. Uh, that's your award. In the summer, they brought in Malasia. He's been okay. He got a run in the team because Shaw started the season poorly. Then his form fell off, and then Shaw's gotten back in. They signed Christian Eriksen. Eriksen has taken a little bit of time to find his footing, but once he's gotten comfortable in the team... With Casemiro, it started to look like it makes sense. Now, I don't know that you can do it long term. I don't know it will work against good teams in good form, but it's done all right. They signed Lisandro Martinez, and their fans will tell you he's been the best defender in the league, and I'll tell you that's absolute nonsense. He's had a couple of good games. He's had a couple of absolute stinkers, and he's been just okay for the majority. He is, as predicted, awful in the air. He mitigates that by simply not contesting in the air, which is a worry with a Premier League centre-back. They signed Casemiro. Again, it's taken him a little bit of time to get going, but he's starting to look more like himself. They signed Tom Huddleston to play in their under-23s and become a coach. It's neither here nor there. And they signed Anthony. And by signed, I mean they massively overpaid for what looks like a one-trick pony at the moment. 
Now, he obviously has had some decent moments and he's gotten three goals in 11 appearances. But as of right now, it, it doesn't look like a clever decision. They paid 95 million euro, 82 million pounds with a further 5 million in add-ons. The third highest transfer fee in club history after Pogba and Lukaku, both of whom have flopped just ahead of Harry Maguire, who also flopped ahead of Jaden Sancho, who's heading the flop route. There's plenty of talent in the squad. There's there's no way to get around that, but there are still some big holes. David De Gea doesn't suit at all what Eric Ten Hag wants to do, but he suits what he has done, which is the deeper block. Lindelof is okay. Baye is always injured. Phil Jones is always injured and needs to just get well clear of the club. Maguire started the season disastrously and has been dropped. And in all likelihood, this is his last season there. The problem they have is I don't know how you really get rid of him because I don't know who buys him. Now, he is 29. He'll turn 30 in March. His contract, if I'm not mistaken, runs till 2025. It does. Um, And they've got an option for another year. He's on big money, and he costs big money, and he is the club captain, but I don't know where they get rid of him. There will be Premier League clubs that will want him. There's no question. But none of the top Premier League clubs will want him. And what that means is you're going to take an enormous loss, and he's going to have to take a significant cut in wages. But that's probably something they need to do. Martinez, long term, I, I just I'm not backing him as a Premier League centre back. I've seen nothing to convince me otherwise. When the game's on the ground and everything's nice and tight around him, and it's that deep block, he's fine. But when United have been a bit more open and played a bit higher, he's looked like a disaster, and he's awful in the air. Cristiano's gone. Bruno's having a poor season, but with Cristiano gone, I expect a return of the good Bruno. Martial hasn't played a lot, but when he has played, I've actually been very impressed. Rashford looks an awful lot better this season than he did last season. Mason Greenwood is in prison. Malashia, there's definite promise there. Eriksen, we know all about. Um, Ahmed Diallo is a very promising player that I think they should be planning to have around the squad more rather than continually sending him out on loan. I'm... I'm a bigger Fred fan than a lot of people. I think he's a decent player, but he's not a first-choice starter, and that's that's fine. He's a decent squad player. My belief is that Casemiro's past his best, and I've, I've yet to see anything that suggests he's not, but he has looked better in recent weeks for them, or recent weeks, the last few weeks of the season before the break. Varane is, I think, a similar situation to Casemiro. He's still good. He's just not great anymore. Um, Diogo Delot is the most improved player in the league this season and he's been really good so credit to him Anthony I've mentioned Tom Heaton's the backup keeper whatever Luke Shaw has had a weird season awful dropped and been pretty good since Sancho is a cautionary tale he took the money it was the wrong move and his future looks a little bit bleak at the club right now uh, Facundo Palestri, like Ahmad, they could do with just getting him some minutes in the team at some point. Aaron Wan-Bissaka stands alongside 
Maguire is one of the worst signings you'll ever see. Um, but there is a there is a player there in the right role. It's just not at Manchester United, and it's not for fifty million. Uh, Nathan Bishop is a backup goalkeeper. Dubravka is a backup goalkeeper. Brandon Williams is talented, and I think he can have a future at the club. Donny Van de Beek, one of the worst signings of all time, um, from both sides, his and the clubs. Anthony Alanga, I quite like. I think he's a talented, a little bit limited, but a talented winger. Uh, Tunzebi's a decent young defender, although he's not young anymore. I think he might be 24, 25. McTominay is a mid-table player. Nothing will ever convince me. Otherwise, Menji, I don't know much about. Um, Mejbri, I like his aggression, and I think he's somebody that you can have as a squad player when he comes back off loan. Shola Shortire is very talented. Garnacho is the reason that Sancho's career might take a dip because Garnacho is playing in such a way that he might start demanding more regular minutes and given how much this manager spent on Anthony mm, Sancho's the one to drop out really isn't he um, Iqbal, McNeil and Menu, I don't know much about looking at their first 11 the clear need for me The clear need for me is a nine. But I don't think you're going to get a nine in January. You're not going to get a nine of the calibre that you would want in January. So that might be something you have to park until summer. Now, you can, without question, you can look at their squad and say, do they really need much? Do they just Should they just carry on with what they've got? Because... You're not. They also need a goalkeeper, but they're not going to get that in January either, unless they overpay for somebody, which wouldn't be a surprise with them. But Delo looks good at right back, and they've got Williams, so I would say right back. Just leave it as it is, and let's see how these two develop there. Left back Shaw is so inconsistent; it infuriates me. When he's on, he's good, and when he's not, he's absolutely dreadful. There's no six out of ten Luke Shaw game. He's 8 out of 10 or 3 out of 10. There's nothing in between with him. Malashia looks promising, but maybe looks the same. There's either a really good game or an awful game and nothing in between. I still wouldn't trust the centre-back group. And I'd maybe look to add somebody, but you have to shift Maguire and probably Baye before you do that because you can't carry seven senior centre-backs. And like Phil Jones not going anywhere so well, until his contract expires. You've got Varane, you've got Lindelof, you've got Martinez. I'd be looking for one more to go with that group. Um, but you've you, you've got Jones, you've got Maguire, you've got um, you've got Bailly, so you you can't really be just blowing the squad that much. Midfield, it is what it is. It's not fantastic, but it's working so far. When they have when teams sit off them, Casemiro and Eriksen look good. When teams press them, then they start to look a little bit old and leggy. Um, you've got Fred for depth in there. Mejbri will be depth in there. I'd look probably look to sell McTominay and bring in somebody as a, a as an upgrade on McTominay, who can maybe become the starter next to Casemiro, and maybe you start to use Ericsson a bit more like a a utility player. Some games in midfield, some as a ten, some left wing. You do that, you can let Donny Van de Beek go because he Ericsson can be your alternative to Bruno. And please, for the love of God, somebody free Donny Van de Beek. Like, it's just been a disaster. 
right wing, they've got good options. Well, they've got options. They've got Anthony. They've got Ahmad, if they ever bring him back. And they've got Palestri, who prefers to play that side than the left side. And then left side, they've got Garnacho, Sancho and Rashford. Up front, they've got Martial and Rashford. So you would say goalkeeper and nine are the spots for them to immediately look to upgrade the starting 11. Um, you can ask questions about all the other positions, but they're the two areas that kind of need immediate attention or, or kind of short-term attention. Um, but look, if Martial can click, we know he's a good player. It's just he doesn't stay fit and he doesn't show it often enough. I think their best their best bet is probably just to stand pat in January and not do anything because you're going to have to overpay. You've already overpaid far too much. And the chances are in January you go out and you do something silly and you don't get the right player and then the right player becomes available in the summer. So my advice to United will be do nothing. Let the players you brought in in January settle in and let's see what you've actually got. Start using more of these young players and see what you've actually gotten them. Allow this manager to start putting his style of play properly in place rather than having to rely on Ollie Bowl. We've seen, obviously, good games where that looks more like Ten Hag's blueprint, but the better results they've had have all come by playing Ollie Bowl. Um, right, one player for each Premier League club from this World Cup. Let's start with Arsenal. They're... They're on the lookout for a backup left winger, though I don't think it's what they need because they've got um, Emile Smith-Rowe. They could probably do it a backup right winger, more to the point. Uh, I think they could do with another midfielder. I think that's something that's definitely an issue for them. I would say... I would say Mohamed Kudus is actually the player they should go and buy. I think he would fit really well into how they play. I think you could rotate him in Saka. I think you could rotate him in Odegaard. I think he could play left wing for you if needed. And I also think he could play in midfield. So I would say Mohamed Kudus is a good fit there. Uh, moving on to Aston Villa. Uh, I think centre-back is the biggest area of need for Aston Villa. And... I will say hmm. there hasn't been a lot of defences that have actually stood out to me all that well. You know what? I won't say I won't go I won't go mid I won't go centre back. I'll go midfield. A Jacob Ramsey Bubakar Kamara Eunice Musa midfield strikes me as something that could be very, very good. Now, they've also got Douglas Louise, but you want to have four good starters for three positions. And if Ramsey's brother Aaron continues to develop, I think he's at Swindon unknown this season. Um, where is he unknown? Aaron Ramsey. He is on loan. Norwich, sorry, Norwich. Um, if he continues to develop, then they've got five for five for for three roles. 
And then they still have John McGinn, but I'd be looking to move him on. Um, and I'm really curious to know if Cole Ramsey is going to be a similar level of player as what his brothers look like they can achieve. Um, but yeah, I would say Eunice Musa. Bit more defensive solidity, more work rate. Yeah, Eunice Musa. That's a really nice midfield. Jacob Ramsey, Bubakar Kamara, Eunice Musa. Bournemouth. Again, I think it's a centre-back. I think it's a commanding right-sided centre-back, ideally. Again, there hasn't been a whole lot of defenders that have really stood out to me in this competition as you know, players that I think could come into the Premier League and do a particularly good job. But I do quite like Taibi, the Tunisian. Um, he's playing for Laurent. This is his first season there. He was at Ruben Kazan. He's played in Turkey before that. Um, Montesar Taibi. I would go for him. I quite, I quite like the look of him. So that's who I'm going to say. Uh, moving on then. Brentford. Brentford's biggest need to me is a right back. I know they're playing Hickey there, but I, he's, he's a left back. They could do with a centre back. It's actually centre back probably. So another centre back for to go to Brentford. Um, Ashraf Dari. The Moroccan, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. He might be the one. Ashraf Darvi, Dari plays for Brest in France. Um, six three, big unit. Yeah, maybe him. I think he might fit well in the middle of a back three. Moving on to Brighton and Hove Albion. It's a nine. It's obviously a nine. That's the thing they need most. And I might stick with Morocco here and say Yusuf N. Naziri, who I think will be a really good fit in that Brighton team. So I'm going to go with him. And Morocco, I'm coming back for one more. Uh, For Chelsea, it's a holding midfielder. This might be the spot for Sofian Amrabat. But, because I'm going to try and stay away from English players that are based in the Premier League. So I'm not going to say Declan Rice, you know, but uh, but I will have Jude Bellingham coming up. Don't worry. Um, I, I think Amrabat would be a really good fit there. Yeah, Sophie and Amrabat. Uh, Crystal Palace, box-to-box midfield kind of ball-winnery type player, to go next to Decore, that Conor Gallagher role. That's the one I think they need to fill. Because at right back, it might be Ferguson. So try and fill that midfield role. No. I don't know if they could get him. But if they could, Ivan Illich, 
of Hellas Verona. Hellas Verona, formerly of Manchester City, didn't play a whole lot in the World Cup, um, if at all. But yeah, he's the one I actually think would be a great fit there. I think him, him and Dekure would be a proper pairing in midfield. And that would then free up Eze to play left, Olise right, and then Zaha and Eduard through the middle. Like a 4-4-2, four, 4-box-2. Four, four, I think that would be really good. So I'll go Illich. Um, Everton. God, they need a lot. Um, I, I think they need goals is, is the biggest thing for them. I think they need goals and there's just not enough in the team right now. So, they've got a nine. They need more of a goal-scoring wide man. Cody Gakbo. I think they're the perfect Cody Gakbo team. Yeah, I'll go Cody Gakbo. I think they'd have the money as well if they if they were able to convince him. If they had a real manager, for example, and could convince him, I think Cody Gakbo would be a be a good fit there to play off the left. Then you could rotate Gordon and Gray on the right. And I'd look to just convert Dwight McNeil into a into an eight and go Dwight McNeil Onana plus one as the long term midfield three. I think McNeil has the build for it. He's got the passing range for it. He's got the work rate for it. I think that's the role that could suit him. And then he can go compact back four with Michael Enko right back. Um, Patterson, sorry, Michael Enko left back, Patterson right back. Yeah, I think that I think that worked. Godfrey and whoever at centre-back. Godfrey and Tarkovsky. Um, yeah, I, I think Cody Gakbo is a good fit there. Uh, Fulham. I think they need to sort their right back situation. Really do. It's just been a bit a bit of a mess thus far at right back for them. Um player that I do like that I thought looked good in this World Cup was Angelo Presado, the um the Ecuador right back. I thought he looked pretty good in this competition, so He's at Genk in Belgium. I would say he's definitely gettable for them. Um, so I'd go for him. Leeds. Right, uh, they need a centre-back. That's the big need for them. They need a centre-back. Left-side centre-back, ideally. So it doesn't have to be left-footed, but just primarily plays uh, left-side. So... Don't want anyone that's going to be ridiculously expensive. And could I stick with Ecuador? Could they could they attract Incapié? Probably not. That's probably out of their Pavlovich. Pavlovich is a shout. That is a great shout. Big, powerful, aggressive, gnarly centre back. Yeah, Strahinya Strahinya Pavlovich. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, that's a great shout. Pavlovich. 
Red Bull Salzburg bought him to sell him. So, absolutely. I like that one. It improves them in the air as well. And they're, they're, they're awful defending corners. So, that'll help. Leicester City. Wouldn't you know it? Also, desperately in need of a centre-back. Now, they've got a bit more of a budget. So, they can be a bit more um, ambitious, I suppose. So, they could be the club for Hincapié. They've got a bit of a track record of attracting players that you'd kind of suggest would be good enough to go to a better club. But I think Hincapié there is is where we'll place him. Liverpool. Enzo Fernandez. I'm not even going to explain it. It's just Enzo Fernandez. Manchester United. Um... Goalkeeper or nine. Probably easier to find them a goalkeeper. It's actually not. Um it is, it is. Yeah. Their goal the goalkeeper that they that they want is at the World Cup. It's Diogo Costa of Porto. That's the goalkeeper they've been heavily linked to, so we'll say him. It could also be Robert Sanchez, who hasn't played, but he's been at the World Cup. So, either of those. Manchester City. Um, Close your ears, Liverpool fans. Jude Bellingham. Moving on to Newcastle. I reversed City and United because I didn't want Liverpool and City back-to-back. Jude to City, Enzo to Liverpool. I don't know what happens. I, I, I'm I starting to get on board that it may actually happen that Liverpool get Jude. And I think if Liverpool get Jude, I think Enzo ends up at Real Madrid. I don't think City actually get him. I don't think they go for him. Uh, I wonder if they might turn around and try and buy Jacob Ramsey from Villa. But um, I, my preference is Enzo. So, Newcastle. They could do with one in midfield. They could do with one at the back. I think we'll go with midfield. Um, Trying to think what else do they have any need for. I think the player that makes sense for them in terms of fitting in with what they do in midfield and, and freeing Bruno, uh, Bruno Gomes to be a bit more attack-minded might be, might be Pape Gay, Pape Gaye from um, Marseille. I think he could be a good fit there. Ishmael Jacobs could also be a decent fit for them at left-back. I'll go Pape Gay. He was my initial thought. I'll go with him. Nottingham Forest. They've signed everybody. Um, Let's see. 
I mean, they could use help at centre-back, but they've already got Loic Bade, and if they just give him an opportunity, I think he will be very, very good. Pretty good in midfield. They're pretty good up front. I don't know what else you could really give them at this point. They've signed so many players. Um... Let me see. They've got loads of left backs. I maybe look at a right back. I, I know they've got Nico Williams. They paid pretty big money for him, but I wouldn't be a big fan. And I'm not a fan of Serge Aurier. Not like there was a fantastically standout group of right backs in this competition anyway. Do you know who might be as a bit of a schemer in midfield? Sebastian Szymanski of Dino Moscow, who's currently on loan at Feyenoord, just as a bit of a playmaking midfielder, someone who can unlock a defence a little bit, could be worth a bit of a shot. So we'll go him. Um, Southampton they need grown-ups is what they need I like I like individually the goalkeeper and all the defenders the starting defenders Um, especially Livermento once he's back Livermento, Belicoccia Salisu Perot or Walker-Peters midfield Romeo Lavia I think one next to Romeo Lavia is probably the play here. Or someone in that more. Their biggest need is, is goals, though. If we're being really honest, their biggest need is goals. They just don't score enough. But they can't afford to go out and buy the type of strikers that have stood out at this tournament. For the most part, anyway. Um... If we look at the, the people that have scored at this World Cup, they're all kind of out of there. Oh, there's one who, who might not be. He's 29, he'll be 30 in February, and he's not got a huge track record, but he is he is a presence. But I don't want to lose him from Werder Bremen. I was going to say Nicholas Fulkrug. I don't really want to lose him from Bremen. Because we don't have a whole, don't have a whole lot else going on at the moment. Um, those kind of seem like the obvious one, though. Someone big and burly to lead the line who everybody else can play off. Yeah, right. Nicholas Fulcrum for Southampton. Uh, Tottenham Hotspur, centre-back, Josco Gvardiol, without question, ideal. West Ham, this would have been another really... This would actually be a better Sophie and Amrabat 
spot because Amrabat and Rice would free Rice to play box to box. Can we find another midfielder for Chelsea? I'm going to say Amrabat for West Ham. He also feels like more of a West Ham level player and someone that with that team could could really do well. So I'll go him there, which means we need somebody else for Chelsea. Um, doesn't have to be a holding mid, to be fair. Do you know what? We're just going to cheat and we're going to say Christopher and Kunku for Chelsea because I just don't care enough to go back and think. West Ham, Amrabat, Wolverhampton Wanderers. Uh, again, they need goals, but they need some other stuff as well. I would suggest... I would suggest that the player for them is probably in the Portuguese squad. Like, let's be honest, they love to sign Portuguese players. I actually do think it is as well. I think Ricardo Horta, the Braga winger, who's been he was unbelievable last year. He's one of these players who seems to have a great year, a good year, a great year, a good year, but he is on track for another great year. Um, Ricardo Horta, that's who I'll go for. Um, I think he's he's a good player. He's a little bit light, a little bit lightweight, but very creative and knows how to score goals. Yeah, we'll go Ricardo Horta. So there we go. Right, that'll do. I will uh, wrap up now with the gossip and we'll be done. Real Madrid are interested in Alejandro Garnacho. Wouldn't surprise me. Real like to snap up young talent. Uh, Real are not intending to make a move for Garnacho, Rafael Leo, or Cody Gakpo in the January transfer market, apparently. AC Milan will give Rafael Leo an ultimatum in January, sign a new contract or leave. I bet they won't. I bet they won't, because he'll just say, fine, I'll leave. Uh, England midfielder Jude Bellingham will tell Borussia Dortmund he wants to leave the club after the World Cup, and the the 19-year-old's father would like his son to move to Liverpool. Uh, this is all coming from Christian Folk, so I don't believe any of it. He, the guy is a spoofer, but I, I'm hopeful that something happens. Manchester United are working on a deal to sign Borussia Mönchengladbach and Switzerland goalkeeper Jan Sommer on a free next summer. Real Madrid have agreed a six-year deal worth around £62 million to sign 16-year-old Brazilian forward Endrick from Palmieri's. He won't join the club until July of 2024 when he turns 18. I'm not reading about AC Milan and Hakim Ziyech. Paris Saint-Germain president Nasir Al-Khalifi says Marcus Rashford could be a summer target for the French club. Having scored three goals at the World Cup already, England's Rashford said nothing beats scoring for his country. United fans are up in arms. They'll be crying in the streets of Salford. Uh, Arsenal will look at options after Gabriel Jesus suffered knee injury at the World Cup. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. James Madison is Newcastle's top transfer target for January. 
Aston Villa, Leicester and Atletico Madrid have asked about Stefan de Vries' contract situation. He's out of contract next summer. He's a very Simeone-esque defender. I don't know about him in the Premier League. He's a little bit too slow at this point. Aaron Wan-Bissaka is expecting to leave Manchester United during the January transfer. I reckon he goes to Palace on loan. Inter Milan are monitoring Chris Smalling. We had that yesterday as well. Um, Fossum International, the owners of Wolves, are looking for a new investor in the club, but have no intention of selling the Premier League side. They could do with some new investments, some fresh money. That That's fairly clear. Uh, that's it. That's me for today, folks. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.